Hey folks, welcome to the last installment of Those Meddling Kids. My name is Dr. Jamar Tisby. And why that title, Those Meddling Kids? Well, you remember the Scooby-Doo cartoons, right? You had these young people, and then all throughout each episode, they would be trying to solve some crime, some mystery. And at the end, when they found the culprit, they would unmask the person who would inevitably say, and I would have gotten away with it too, if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Well, guess what? We have students at Christian colleges and universities who are meddling with the racist status quo, want to see progress, want to see justice done, and have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to think that their colleges and universities should support them in that endeavor. So you got these grown folks, these folks with money, these alumni, these trustees, administrators, et cetera, et cetera, looking at this group of young people as those meddling kids. Well, we're just going to embrace that term. And I am so thrilled to have our next guest with us, who's going to help us talk about how to protest against the anti-CRT crusade. Please mm -hmm. welcome my friend, exceptional human being, Andre Henry. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jamar. <laughs> Brother, uh, before we dive in, you have got to share with the listeners where you are uh, calling in from, because it's such a good story. <laughs> If you're comfortable. Um, yeah, I guess. <clears throat> I guess so. Um, so right now I'm in Medellin, Colombia. I've been here about a week and I'm just, you know, on my own journey. Um, France Fanon says, we have to trace along the wound that colonialism has left on the land and the people. And so... Uh, I'm in a season of life where I don't know exactly why, but I'm feeling drawn to certain places in the world where I know that there are Black Americans who have left America, that they've migrated out of America because of systemic racism, and drawn to places that hold our history. And Colombia is one of those places. You know, I won't take a whole lot of time because I know that we have something, a whole nother thing to talk about. But Colombia is one of those places that holds both of those things. A large community of black Americans who have left the states because of systemic racism in search of a better life. And Colombia also holds the first settlement, the first city that was founded by liberated um, African former slaves in Palenque which is, you know, just a short plane ride from Medellin. And so I, I plan to go to Palenque soon. And I don't know exactly, you know, what it holds for me, you know, but I'm going to go over there and just like, like Fernand said, just we're trace. I'm just tracing along the wound that colonialism has left on the land and the people. My goodness. So that's where I am. <laughs> Beautiful brother. And thank you for sharing, because here's the thing I want people to take away from that or to glean from that is it's, it's, it's okay to, to feel out of place and to feel restless. Mm -hmm. And it is very, very, very good for the soul as well as mm -hmm. the mind to travel, to experience other people in other places because not every place is like this, like the United States. Not every place 
has the same problem. Every place has problems, yeah, but not every yeah. place has the same problems and it will expand. The other thing I want you to glean. So by the way, college or university students, if you have the opportunity, study abroad. That's your plug. If you have yes. questions, let me know. Talk to Andre. We will yes. convince you. The other thing yes. that's important is um, this man is a man of action. He is a man who follows his convictions, and that's why I wanted uh, to talk to you today. So um, just give us a little bit of background, Andre, on your educational experience, your professional experience, what you're up to. For sure, for sure. And I, I'll, I'll give what's most relevant for, for our listeners. Um, so right now I'm the program manager for the Racial Justice Institute at Christians for Social Action. Um, so my work has a lot to do with trying to help people or build experiences, journeys, programs that help people to learn more about racism, racial justice, and specifically how to pursue it. And my lens is very much a civil resistance lens, a nonviolent civil resistance lens. So there are many ways that people can engage this work, view the work, view the problem, all of that. But my conviction is that uh, understanding and perfecting the craft of nonviolent uprisings is a key, a key to disrupting the power of systemic oppression in this in the, and in this case we're talking about racism, and it's a conviction that comes through through studying, <clears throat> studying uh, as much as I can about the history of social movements and uh, and movements against imperialism, colonialism, and systemic racism, which all those things, <laughs> at least in my at least in my journey, I've seen all those things intertwine, you know, um, because it started with being tired of seeing people like us, you know, bleeding to death on Facebook live, you know, or having some police officer kneel on someone's neck or, you know, the stories. And I got tired of that. And I said, I have to figure out what did our predecessors do? Like Dr. King and, you know, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, you know, yes. all these people. Uh, they did something that has changed America. I know that sometimes people say it hasn't changed or hasn't changed enough, but I've been to Birmingham, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I've walked down the street in Birmingham and no one tried to lynch me. And that's a, that actually is a big deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to go. But anyway, my point is that I, I knew that our predecessors did something that did at least change two things. It, it shifted the common sense in America to some degree to where people don't just walk around here saying whatever they want, or at least they didn't <laughs> before 2016. Um, <laughs> there was a while where it seemed that the common sense <laughs> shifted to where people felt right. like they couldn't just be overtly racist in public. Mm -hmm. Right. And the whites only signs are not on the bathrooms and the water fountains and the restaurant doors anymore. So that, that, that alone made me say, I got to figure out, why that worked, how it works. And that has taken me on a years-long journey through the mm. works of folks like, uh, well, Thoreau, uh, Thoreau, Gandhi, Tolstoy, Dr. King, um, 
and so on. Like I traced it from Thoreau up to the present. So, wow. you know, you could Charlene Crothers and uh, uh, Patrice Cullors and, you know, like just all the way down the line. So I read, I started reading, I'm taking a long time, but for, I started at the Mexican-American War all the way up to current movements and ended up mm-hmm. reading about movements all over the world. And then I started meeting practitioners and scholars of nonviolent struggle. And then, you you know, when you're doing that kind of work, you eventually might find yourself in the presence of those who are at the front of that field. Yeah. And I found myself at that dead end pursuing these questions one day when I was on the phone with someone who leads an institu- institute. And they were like, well, you know, there's a Harvard course. I was like, yes, I've taken it. Have you met this person? Yes, I've met them. Have you met this other person? Yes, I've, I've met them. Okay. <laughs> to the point where I have, you know, uh, a couple of my mentors have actually helped lead, you know, successful revolutions in other countries through nonviolent civil resistance. Wow. So all that to say, that's my background, you know, and what I found on this journey is that there's so many stories that were never told. There's mm-hmm. so many, uh, there's so much insight about how nonviolent struggle works that we are not, that we don't know because we're not taught these things in school. And uh, we have these ideas about how change works through protests that is actually kind of faulty. So it's been my mission since about 2017 or so somewhere around there to get this information to as many people as possible. Didn't I tell y'all? Didn't I tell y'all? He's a man of action. Um, I love this course of study that you undertook in (laughs) um, nonviolent action, nonviolent Mm -hmm. resistance. And that's what we want to talk about today. Uh, Before we get into that, um, or well, well, as we, as we talk about the, the sort of next, battlefront in the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. it's taken on this label, this anti-CRT crusade, yeah. as I'm calling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so this, this has emerged as the next sort of sphere of struggle against um, the forces of racism, white supremacy, imperialism, colonialism, all those things that you named. Most of my guests have not been critical race theory scholars, although a few have, but we've all had to learn something about it. So what would you say is important to know about critical race theory? Yeah, I think that what's important for people to know about critical race theory, especially uh, especially if they're not familiar with it, is that one is... I just recently finished reading this book called How Fascism Works. And one of those chapters in there talks about how these these kinds of regimes, these oppressive these oppressive regimes, create an atmosphere where the truth actually doesn't matter. Mm. And it's not it's not even about arguing the facts. It literally is it's literally it literally is that the truth does not matter. Mm. What matters is um, the the project the 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 political and social project of the of the oppressor and so whatever stories they tell okay i'm speaking very theoretically let me just give you the example that they gave they gave the example of pizzagate um which i mean i don't even remember entirely in detail but i think the i think that i think the conspiracy theory was that there was this pizza place in washington dc that was hiding uh, that was a front for some kind of human trafficking ring that 
they were accusing Democratic politicians of being involved in. And so somebody went to this restaurant to try to prove or disprove this was happening. And of course, they went there and they they proved that there there's no secret basement or whatever, you know, where this is going on. And there were people who were actually mad at that person for trying to go and uncover the truth. This is an example of just saying that in the kind of atmosphere that these places want to that these places. Um, so the, sorry, the atmosphere that those who are committed to that oppressive system uh, they want to create an atmosphere where it actually is not about the truth. There's no need to go and try to prove or disprove the claim because the point is to keep that atmosphere uh, where whatever justifications there are for the oppressive politics of the day or the oppressive culture of the day, that's the point, right? Yeah. So anyway, I say all that to say that the way that we're the, the way that we're seeing people talk about any type of accurate representation of American history or any notion of anti-racist thought is being lumped into this label of CRT to create a distorted picture of it, to create a boogeyman, a straw man that they can say is categorically evil and must be fought against is what's happening right now. That's one thing yeah. I would say people need to know. And is that... And that's, I mean, I know I'm not summarizing the points of CRT in that, but I'm just saying that in these types of, Mm -hmm. yes, in these types of political climates or contexts, that there is this notion of intentionally distorting facts, intentionally obscuring the truth, and the point is to keep us in this state of unreality. The second thing that I would say, and I won't take that long on that, is just that this is just historical, like CRT uh, emerged from legal, like the legal field, as these legal scholars were looking at the laws uh, and the history of our of our country, of, of the United States. And um, how do you want to, how do you, how do you want to say that kind of in... They were they were looking at how racism and racist discourses that have existed in this country since its founding impact the practice of law. (laughs) And that's where it came from. Um, Some now some of the language of critical race theory has been found useful by the general public for some time to talk about how systemic racism works, but that really is what it is. And so tying that back to the, the climate of unreality is people are complaining about CRT being taught in elementary school, (laughs) high school, (laughs) middle school, even college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. They're, every, they're everywhere. Someone's like, uh, I found I I found a CRT under my bed. It tried to eat my. It tried to bite. Tried to bite my face off. You know, but actually, you you actually have to kind of study law. You know, or sociology. Like you have to go. You you would have to seek it out to yeah, actually it's an get academic what, discipline. Yeah, exactly to get what it actually is. So those are the two things. It's an academic discipline that most people are never going to encounter in a deep way in their life <laughs> unless you mm-hmm. actually go to school or college to study something like sociology or law. And secondly, 
this is a part of this is another example of another uh, regime that is trying to create a boogeyman to yeah. justify a certain oppressive political project. That's so good. That's really helpful to, to sort of, again, unmask <laughs> what's mm-hmm. actually going on here. Um, yeah. So this whole video teaching series um, is geared toward truth telling, geared toward mm-hmm. information sharing, geared toward data, facts, accuracy. Yeah. But at some point, we've got to add to that. I won't say move beyond, but we've got to build on that truth telling um, mm-hmm. and take action. So can you talk about the interplay between truth telling and nonviolent direct action protest or demonstration? Yes, I have so many things that I can say about this. The first thing that I want to say is um, I feel that a lot of people have a very narrow idea of what it means to stand against systemic oppression and evil. I am going to say it's evil, right? <laughs> um, that misconception is that we conflate protest with uh, resistance to oppression altogether, right? Protest is just one broad category of nonviolent struggle. I, I I pause when I say nonviolent because I mean you could you can actually broaden that and say protest is any type of you know, but within but but from my lens of nonviolent civil resistance, protest is just one broad category of um of nonviolent resistance to oppression. Um, a part of that I think comes from this phrase that this common phrase that we have that we're going to speak truth to power and that is that is good that's valuable speaking truth to power that's essentially what protest is it's expressing our point of view expressing our desires expressing our our dreams our hopes for our lives and our displeasure with uh oppressive politics and those who support and maintain them and create them. The problem is, is that systemic racism is actually a system of actual power, not just the kind of soft power that comes from, you know, the media reproducing and amplifying racist discourses and, uh, you know, companies that don't hire uh, or don't don't have people of color represented in their leadership structures, or movies and and novels and toys and action figures that present you know standards of beauty, uh, European standards of beauty and all that kind of stuff. But this it's also uh, hard power. It's it's the police choking George Floyd in the middle of the street over a, a fake twenty dollar bill. I think it was, you know, it's. It's tear gas and rubber bullets meeting protesters in the streets who are protesting. Um, and so because systemic racism is actually a, syst- a system of actual power, speaking truth to power only has so much of an effect on it. You actually have to do the things that disrupt the, uh, the flow 
of of oppressive power in that uh, context. When Gandhi, Gandhi's conception of nonviolent struggle um, is called Satyagraha, Satyagraha. And I'm not presenting Gandhi as the pinnacle of nonviolent struggle, but his major contribution to nonviolent struggle is that he really experimented with it a lot and was able to help. Um, his his major contribution was strategy, basically, to nonviolent mm-hmm. struggle. Gandhi Gandhi was a a a great strategist. Now, Gandhi called nonviolent struggle things like the salt march that he led in India, for instance, where the British Empire forbid. Indian citizens, Indian people, from making their own salt. <laughs> Which, if okay. you think about this, if you think about this, who, what, what, what person has the right to tell you that you cannot gather something that is produced naturally in the ocean, right? Mm. Okay, so Gandhi led this march to the sea to lead people in this act of civil disobedience to create their own salt. Okay. Now, what uh, I just wanted to give an example of the type of action that we're talking about. Gandhi literally uh, called his method of nonviolent struggle satyagraha, which means something like uh, truth force or soul force. But basically, Gandhi argued that Nonviolent struggle is a way that we actually hold on to the truth. Mm. It's a way that we tell the truth. It's a way that we put the truth into action. We embody the truth, right? And so there's the connection for me is that one thing is that, first off, speaking truth to power is good, but it doesn't actually necessarily always disrupt the flow of oppressive power. Uh, one scholar puts it like this, speaking truth to power is not power in itself. <laughs> you, mm. have to, you have to arm the truth. You have to give it teeth <laughs> through direct action. Wow. You know? Yeah. Which is what Gandhi was saying, I believe, when he decided to name his conception of nonviolent struggle, Satyagraha, which is a way that we actually embody the truth goodness i love that uh soul force truth force embodying the truth there's a continuity between speaking the truth and and acting the truth speaking the truth living and and demonstrating the truth that's so powerful okay so let's say we're in a training in Mm -hmm. nonviolent direct action with Andre Henry, I'm a uh, uh, a young college student who has no experience in this. What yeah. are some just basic principles, do's and don'ts, foundational ideas that we need to know about nonviolent protest? Yeah, you know, um, many people who have taught about this have found themselves needing to give people the same lessons over and over again. Okay, so Dr. King writes about this in his essay, Journey, a Pilgrimage to Nonviolence. So there are a few things. One is that nonviolent struggle is an active method of confrontation. Because a lot of times when people talk about nonviolent struggle or civil resistance, they, when you actually kind of ask them more about what they're talking about, they're talking about inaction. Thinking of, think about Colin Kaepernick and how, how controversial 
his protest was. And when you really dig down into what people's problem with this was, because they're like, oh, well, it shouldn't he shouldn't be doing that at work or he shouldn't be it's, uh, politics have no place in football or um, so on and so forth. And basically, at the end of the day, what you get down to is that people just felt like he shouldn't be doing it because it made people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But nonviolent struggle is an active method of confrontation, which means you actually have to do something. <laughs> it's not just an idea that you hold in your head, right, about about nonviolence. It's actually active and it is confrontational, which means that it will be offensive to some people. It will be divisive to some people. The point is not is not that you are um, inoffensive. Not that you, is the point is not to make sure you don't upset anyone. The key is to make sure that you honor the humanity in the people that you are confronting. Mm. By <laughs> that, that is the point. Is that you are, yeah. you are, you are, you are acting in good faith, actually, right? And confronting the the uh, for lack of a better term the you're confronting the evil that they perpetuate um but you are but you are not trying to harm them as, as you're not going to dehumanize them in the same way that their actions have dehumanized you exactly uh, it gets back to loving your neighbor as yourself even when i disagree even when someone is doing something that's harming me mm-hmm. i will not sort of um lower myself or or the other person to act yeah. in ways that that dishonor the image of God in everyone right. that's so good exactly and and one of the key ways that you know one of the key ways that you're not doing that right is by choosing not to choosing try, choosing not to cause them harm right yeah yeah right so you're not going out and punching people in the face and all that kind of stuff so active method of struggle another thing that I would say people really need to know is that it's based on the idea that power, is not like an object that one person holds, but but that but that power is something that we all hold together. I usually play Simon Says with people to illustrate this because, you know, and I, I you know, I'll say, okay, we're gonna play Simon Says and we're gonna think about power. If power is the ability to accomplish something, to get something done, to achieve a purpose, as Dr. King says, then this is a perfect game to illustrate what how power actually works. So I usually tell people, okay, Simon says, say your first name. Everybody says, your, and everybody will. Okay, Simon says, clap for me, clap your hands three times. Everybody does it. Then I say, okay, cl- Simon says, stand up and pull your pants down. Nobody ever wants to do this part, right? No one ever does, the, does this. And so the game has come to a halt, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Simon has Simon has tried to use his power or we've all assumed that Simon has the power in this game because everyone's doing what Simon says. But once everyone in the game decides we're not going to do what Simon says, the game doesn't work anymore. Mm. And that's the same thing about society. That's that is the that is the theory of power that underlies nonviolent struggle. What we're trying to do is organize that power. As Gene Sharp says, obedience is at the heart of political power. So our disobedience, <laughs> our defiance, our our collective decision to do something different is the thing that uh, is the is our superpower. That's the people's superpower is our ability to say. If we are, if the if the if the powers that be, if the authorities will not listen to the will of the people and the desires of the people, then the people will no longer 
give these people our obedience, our compliance. We will withdraw our obedience. We will withdraw our compliance. And the system or the the status quo, whatever you want to call it, the 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 regular natural flow of things will not work. So in this case, we're talking about a school, right? Yeah. Now here's what happens. Um, you have some people that say, well, we're gonna run this organization, this institution this way, right? And what they expect is that tomorrow everything will function the way that it has always functioned. The students will come in at this time. They will do their they will do their duties and their activities. They'll move to the next class. The teachers will come in and do and teach classes. The uh, the the custodial staff will come in and, and clean the school. The landscapers will come and cut the grass and shim, trim the bushes. You know they assume that all of the regular. Uh, I'm trying not to use all these big words that I, that I learned in seminary. It's okay. You know? We got we so, got we got an intelligent, uh, well read audience. I know yes. you all are college students. So, <laughs> but okay. So they assume that the regular machinations of the institution will continue to flow as they always have. The power that we have, and this is why I talked about Simon Says, is to say, okay, well, if you think that you're just going to ignore the will of these people, then these people are no longer going to go along with business as usual. So, and you, and the key is, okay, maybe we get to get to this, get to that later. The key is, but the one thing I want for people to understand in this point is that that is our superpower, right? If if the students say we want this and the administration thinks we're just going to ignore them, then what happens? What happens when students don't do what they would usually do or teachers don't do what they would usually do mm. or the custodial staff doesn't do what they would usually do or the kitchen staff doesn't do what they would usually do, right? So that's one. So first, active method of struggle. Second, that um, it relies on the fact that it is that power <laughs> is widely held. It is dispersed mm. among the people. Uh, it, it depends on those on the ruled. I, I hope that's yeah, clear. On, it's on, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. In political terms, it depends on the consent of the governed. Exactly. And if the leaders are not listening to the people, and, and this is as American as it gets, <laughs> you just protest. <laughs> yeah, you you rebel. Except they don't apply that, of course, when it comes to uh, black civil rights or or racial justice. Right, Nevertheless, right. that principle. I, I mean, it's so empowering, and I love that example of Simon Says because it says, actually, yeah, these people may have a position, yes. but you still have power. Exactly. And the yeah. the power that the position holds, uh, uh, the position is only as powerful as the people make it, right? Because, <laughs> because you can have a title, <laughs> but if people don't do what you want for them to do, then the title means nothing. And that's why the, the, the Simon Says game is so, is so key. And the Montgomery Bus Boycott, I think, uh, um, illustrates this as well, where you had these laws of segregation where the black people are supposed to sit in the back of the bus. But when black people say, black people stop complying and say, well, we're not going to do that. Matter of fact, we're not even going to ride the bus. <laughs> <laughs> now who has the power? Exactly. Look how powerful that was, you know, oh because... Because one thing is you're disrupting them economically, first off, because you're taking mm -hmm. money out of that out of that uh, institution. And also there's kind of this 
they also kind of took the power out of the attempt to uh, impose that inferiority, that stigma of inferiority on them because they're saying, well, in this context, we show up as inferior, so we're not going to come anymore. <laughs> you know, Ooh. we're not we're not coming to we're not coming to to do that. And that was also a big problem because there seems to there seemed to have been this or there seems to be the psychological need of those who have been socialized as superiors to need, they need the inferiors to show up so that they can exercise and feel that sense of superiority. So anyway, we've gotten a bit off the subject. One, active method of struggle. Two, it, that it's based on this, this, this uh, fact about social power, right? Three, this is a power struggle. And as my friend Hardy Merriman has articulated, the person who wins in this power struggle is the one who out-organizes the other. Mm. It's, it's not... See, some people just think about force, right? And that's where, you know, some people, they go straight to, you know, breaking windows and burning things and all that kind of stuff, you know? But really, it's about organization, you know? And the more organized you are is the stronger you are. Is the, and it gives the movement longevity. So what we're trying to do is take that theory of power and actually realize it, right? We're trying to use it. We're trying to actually make it into, for lack of a better term, a nonviolent weapon, right? Because mm-hmm. if you know that, okay, for instance, years ago in the Bronx, I don't remember exactly what this was over, <laughs> um, but I remember that the students in the Bronx, they did a lock-in in their school. Now, the issue that they did the lock-in over, I can't remember. And actually, for the, for the for our purposes, it doesn't really matter that much because all we know is that they wanted something to happen in that school. The thing was not happening in that school. And so they decided to organize themselves and disrupt the regular flow of business as usual by locking themselves in the school. So essentially, they say, okay, you won't listen to us. <laughs> then things are not going to operate the way that you've always assumed. Right. So they organize themselves to literally put themselves in they put their physical bodies in a physical space and to be active and confront that issue. Now, because they all have families. Right. People start bringing food to the school to feed them, to make sure that they have what they need. Right. Mm. Because if they if they're in there without if they put themselves under siege in the school (laughs) and they don't have supplies to survive then that action is not going to last very long, right? Sure. So you see the organization we're talking about is mm. in order to do something like that, you have to figure out who's going to be there, when you're going to do that, how you're going to keep the school locked, where are the entrances, how do you lock them, how do you keep them secure, how do you make sure that you have food and water and all those other things that you need, you know? And so that's what you see happening. And so, I, I mean, I think that the, that might be good enough to start you know, and then the last thing that I would say is, no, there are two more things I would say. One is that these campaigns usually depend on a diversity of actions, right? So it's mm. not it's not just, okay, we're going to have a rally or we're going to have a march or we're going to do a lock-in or we're going to do... It's thinking about all those things, right? Yeah. It really takes, it takes some, it takes some analyzing, uh, what is the actual issue here? Who are the decision makers? 
Um, what actions could we perform that would actually put pressure on those decision makers to do differently? Because not every tactic is well uh, correlated to the targets of those uh, of those tactics sometimes, you know? So I, I tell the story sometime of uh, a group I was involved in where the lead organizer was like, we're going to march down to the mayor's house and tell them to fire the police chief. And I was like, but the mayor in this city doesn't make that decision. He doesn't have the power to hire and fire <laughs> the police chief. That's the city manager, right? Mm-hmm. And you need to, and in that case, that that context that I just brought up, you know, you need to know, like, well, is the city manager the type of person who, if 400 people come to his house and do a die-in on his front lawn, will that is that likely to make him uh, want to... Is he likely to fold under that kind of pressure? That's the question, right? right? So that's the kind of analysis that you want to do. And if that... And you might even ask more questions like, okay, well, maybe he wouldn't necessarily fold under that pressure, but he might be the type of person who will call the police and be very vicious to all these nonviolent protesters. And that could backfire on him if you were able to make sure that the media is there so that the rest of the city can see all that kind of thing. You know, that's the kind of analysis that, you know, you're kind of doing. But anyway, my point is that a diversity of tactics is necessary because oftentimes when you're doing these campaigns, it takes some time. The Montgomery bus boycott was 13 months long. The Birmingham campaign was, I think, a couple months long. Um, uh, Gandhi's uh, nonviolent movements with the Indian National Congress in, uh, in India was over a decade. It was like 15 years. The Serbian Revolution, 10 years. Uh, nonviolent Revolution, 10 years. You know, so these things take time. And the way that you're going to be able to sustain these things over time is by having a diversity of actions that you're doing. You can't do a lock-in in a school for five years. <laughs> you know? That's right. That's right. You're not going <laughs> to be locked in the school for, for five years. Eventually, either they're going to meet your demands or they're going to get the police to come in there and drag you out. And you don't want for your try to have to graduate. (laughs) Right. And you don't want your movement to be done as soon as the police come and drag you out. You want to have something else that you're going to do. So diversity of tactics. And the last thing that I would say is that when we're talking about civil resistance, we're talking about operating outside of the normal official channels. Hmm. And this is very important because a lot Hmm. of times, like when we start talking about pursuing change, a lot of people are like, well, there's already an avenue for that. Why don't we vote on this? Why don't we, you know, you know, I don't know what the official channel always is like in this particular instance, like with the college, like if you want, like if you want the, if you wanted the syllabus to change, you know, um, there probably is an official channel for that. You know, you might just go talk to, gosh, I can't forget it. I can't remember right now, but you know, there's a Dean that yes. has to do yeah. with the, with accreditation and you might write letters to them or something. And that's fine. You should start there. Write them a letter. Have a town hall. Speak with them. Give them the chance. Yes. To use, use the established channels. Yeah. Uh-huh. Give them a chance to use the established channels. But always know that usually they don't want to use the established channels. And when they don't, the way that our people have always gained greater uh, liberties, greater rights, Uh, and all those kinds of things is by operating outside of the official channels, Mm. which is where you get these nonviolent struggle things. So, okay, quick review of all of that. 
active method of struggle. It's based on the, the fact that power is social. It's widely held. It is di- it's di- it's uh, widely distributed, not concentrated in certain people who hold titles. Uh, it depends on organizing that power, right? So you have to find uh, whatever way you can organize that power to say, until you listen to the people, this game of Simon Says is not going to continue functioning. It depends on a diversity of tactics, right? Being performed over a long amount of time, mm. right? And then uh, lastly, gosh, what did I just say? I forgot the last thing that I just said. <laughs> over time. Oh, outside the established channels. Give them a chance to use the established channels, but just know that the point of doing nonviolent struggle <laughs> is that you are operating outside of the established channels. Because what you also need to understand is that the powers that be will always try to use the established channels to give a set, give a resemblance of justice or mm-hmm. or it's they will give you concessions, right? Yes. Or they'll yes, yes. or they'll or they'll tell you. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. We 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 care about that too, and we're gonna bring it up at our next, <laughs> at, <laughs> the our, next at our yes, at the next meeting, yep. right? Yep. And they'll keep you they'll keep you waiting for the time that you actually get to talk about that at the next meeting, or at the next meeting they'll talk about it and they'll give you a little concession or whatever. You just have to be careful. And so, anyway, that's those are the things. <laughs> that's uh, it's really empowering what you're saying. I can feel my synapses rewiring as you talk because <laughs> um, it, it, it does rely, it, what, it, what, it, what it communicates to me is that whoever you are, whatever your position, you have agency. You yes. have the ability to consent or to protest uh, yes. based on what the leaders are doing, what the people empowered are doing. And it is tempting at this point to try to say, okay, well, give me specific ideas, specific tactics, but I like this principled approach because what I would encourage folks to do is take those principles, go back, re-listen. I know you got to rewind this, let it, let it sink down in your soul, let it marinate. It's a lot. (laughs) And then get together with the people who are restless, get together with the people who are agitated and want change and say, how do we apply these principles to our situation? Because every situation is going to be different. And to try to lay out blanket tactics for every college or university, every Christian nonprofit, every church, whatever, that's not going to be effective. And if you need even more help, (laughs) you need Mm -hmm. to pay Andre for consulting (laughs) <laughs> and he will he will brainstorm with you and and help instill these principles and and training. So along those lines, brother, what are you working on these days and how can people keep up with you and your work? Yeah, you know, I'm going to I'm maybe going to going to take this a bit left on this question because <laughs> um I would much rather people find out more about this, right? Than yes. to follow me, you know? Okay. Um and I'm just in the season of my life where I'm like, no, don't follow me. Just <laughs> just here's where you can get more information about this. I know? got you. I got you. Um so if you're listening and you just want to keep in touch, you can go google me. But 
<laughs> but what I really, <laughs> but who I want you to, but what I want you to do is there's a book by one of my mentors and friends. It's called Blueprint for Revolution by Serja Popovich. And Serja is, uh, he founded the nonviolent movement that overthrew the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic. And he and his um, colleagues, they train activists all over the world. You know, most, just about any nonviolent uprising you hear about in the world, they're probably in touch with uh, Serge's organization, Canvas. And um, get that book. (laughs) It's so easy to read. It's not very long. And it will give you all the principles of I mean it's not it's not everything you ever need to know but it's a very good primer in what it has brought together about nonviolent struggle and how it works and it's really fun to read because Serge is a jokester and so you know he makes it very easy to to read so tell us the title again blueprint for revolution and the reason why I'm also suggesting that is because when you have principles it's so much better than like being, it's so much better than calling someone like me and being like, okay, what should we do? You know, because you have the principles and you can apply it to your context. And that is oftentimes what I think a lot of people, it it's discouraging for some people because they want someone to just hand them a manual and say, okay, well, I've listened to your, I've listened to your situation and this is what you should do. That's but the truth, the yeah. yes, but the truth is when you are pursuing change, you're improvising, you know. You need to start with a vision of what you want. You need to break that vision down into, you know, what is something that you think you can actually win. You need to build, uh, build a a force of people, build a core of people, a, a that can that can be trained um, to to do this work, you know. But just know, no matter how well you prepare. The moment that you take an action, the conflict situation changes because mm. the because your opponent is going to make a move and now you have to evaluate again. And so that's why no one can tell you. No one can just parachute in and tell you if you just do these three actions, everything's going to change. Right. So I'm happy to help people think through that. If you want to call me, you know, contact me, um, get in touch through Christians for Social Action, you know, send them an email. And say, hey, we'd like some advice on this, you know, from Andre. And if I can help you, I'm happy to think through things with you. But at the end of the day, you have to understand it's improvisation. For me as a musician, there's a lot about music theory that I know, right? I understand how scales and chords and melodies and all that kind of stuff work. But when you're on stage playing that stuff, you're not thinking about, I'm not thinking about how scales are, are, are made and all that kind of stuff. You, I have the principles. <laughs> mm-hmm, I know the mm-hmm. principles so well that I can sit down and make music without mm-hmm. having to think about it and all that kind of stuff. So I say all that to say that get this book. <laughs> I didn't even tell you about my book. You could get my book too. I was going to say. I'm going to plug that to all the white friends yeah. I couldn't keep. Get that yeah. book. That's Andre's book. Yeah, my book has has you know principles in there, but I really would recommend Serge's book get the book, get the principles and start trying to create campaigns based on what you know, you know. Um, There's another shorter book, much shorter if that's too long, called 
Building a Movement to End the New Jim Crow by Daniel Hunter. And that's mm. like 60 pages. It's like a 60-page PDF. And the reason why I'm 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 hammering on this is because, you know, when people are just reactive, um, it it can be successful, but you up your level, you up the potential to create the change that you want by actually understanding the principles that have been applied throughout history that have helped yield more successful movements and successes. And so that's why I'm trying to get people to get some some something like this so that you have some framework for what you're doing and you can plan and 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 take action over the long haul. So that is precisely uh, the note that we need to strike and a wonderful note to conclude this series on as we think about next steps. Yes, yeah. let's equip ourselves with the truth. Yes, mm -hmm. let's speak the truth, but let's mm -hmm. also embody the truth. Let us yeah. um, protest in mm -hmm. truth mm -hmm. and help and let that lead to change. And I'm just letting folks know that if we really want to see substantive change and you've exhausted all of the established channels and that change hasn't come, well, guess what? Right, right. Nonviolent direct action protest is yeah. still on the table. Yeah. And that's why I keep telling people, <laughs> if this is the civil rights movement of our day, then we're going to have to employ some of the same tactics, at least yes. those same principles, yeah. right? Yes. We, we cannot look at this struggle and say, well, all that marching, all that boycotting, all that getting arrested, all of those demonstrate that's in the past. No, mm -hmm. if you want to see change, that has to happen now. And right. you can be part of it. Right. Yeah. You have blessed us, Brother Andre. You have blessed us. Thank you for oh, what you're my doing. my pleasure. <laughs> we are so eager to keep up with you on your journey, uh, the, your worldwide <laughs> journey. So do keep us posted. And I for appreciate sure. you for joining those meddling kids. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.